Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just, I had to engage in a text with a friend of mine right before we started to suggest to him that that maybe the hashtag Cinco de Homo is... is, is <laughs> He, he's talking about this hashtag. How do you celebrate Cinco de Mayo at home? And and maybe we need to see, I was like, no, you don't want to do that one. You do not want to do Cinco de Homo to go with Cinco de Mayo. I, I just, why do people not think before they tweet? Um, I, I'm guilty of that myself. So Cinco de Homo, I guess, uh, is is what the hashtag will be settled on. Uh, today is the day that Americans get to pretend they know something about a Mex- about Mexican history and drink beer. You, you got to think that the the Corona, uh, the, the company that makes Corona beer, uh, surely uh, they have spent uh, since they wound down operations a couple of months ago. Surely they have spent some time thinking of ways uh, to do a clever marketing campaign today. Thus far, no. Uh, and well, they're going to have to do something, but it, just so, just so those of you who are not American understand today is not actually a Mexican holiday. Today is a marketing holiday generated by beer companies to get Americans to eat tacos and, and drink beer. And it falls on, on taco Tuesday. So you can drink beer and uh, you can have tacos, which I intend to do today, but just understand this was an insignificant battle in Mexico that a marketing campaign decided was somehow big. This is not Mexican Independence Day. This is not the Independence Day for Mexico. This is not a, a, a commemoration of a great military victory. It's, it's a nothing burger holiday uh, created by marketing people, much like uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day and, and the rest. Um, or your, your executive assistant day or boss's day. I find those holidays to be so obnoxious. At least with Cinco de Mayo, you, you get Mexican food and beer. So uh, there you are. Uh, yesterday was May the 4th. It was Star Wars Day. Today is Cinco de Mayo, May the 5th. Tomorrow is actually Star Wars Day Part 2. It is the Revenge of the Sixth, where we lament the prequels, The Last Jedi, and how much we consume today on May 5th. And and then we move on with our lives. Uh, Montezuma will have his revenge on the 6th. Uh <laughs> Okay, we've got to move on to to actual important stuff this morning. Uh, In particular, what do we do with China? Oh, 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 hang on before I get there. No, I'm I'm not done with Cinco de Mayo because a buddy of mine uh, texted me this this morning. Uh, You know, I say all the time people are stupid. And, and they are. Uh, if you believe people are stupid, you will never be disappointed in life. These are the questions uh, that are most commonly asked. According to Google, these are the most commonly asked questions about Cinco de Mayo. Number one, when is Cinco de Mayo? If I had a cricket sound effect, I would play it there. Uh, how do you say Cinco de Mayo in Spanish? Again, people are stupid. When is Cinco de Mayo celebrated in Mexico? It's not. When is Cinco de Mayo celebrated in the United States? (laughs) When was the Cinco de Mayo War? It's Mexico's victory over France in the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862. It was a minor battle that amounted to nothing, and uh, it actually... 
was seized on by beer companies to give Americans a reason to drink Mexican beer. Uh, Mexican Independence Day is actually September 16th. Uh, Is Cinco de Mayo the Day of the Dead? No. Where is Cinco de Mayo? Wherever Carmen Sandiego is. Is Cinco de Mayo racist? (laughs) And then the number one question. To remember that people are stupid. Is the holiday Cinco de Mayo about mayonnaise? (sighs) Never, ever underestimate the stupidity of humanity. All right. Now, we will move on to the China situation because what are we going to do about it? There there was actually a story yesterday. If you got my Substack uh, newsletter this morning, I linked to it, and it actually is rather bad, um, surprising, and um, oh, what is this? There's there's a big deal happening. Oh, interesting. Okay, uh, we'll get to that. Um, I, I'm I'm concerned about the American media these days and their willingness to gravitate towards China because orange man bad. Uh, back in the 19, uh, early 1980s, in 1984 to be precise, Gene Kirkpatrick gave a pretty famous speech. Now, I remember, let's see, nope. Yeah, yeah, we're not gonna get there, stop. Uh, I, um. Gene Kirkpatrick was Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations. Gene Kirkpatrick had been a Democrat, but she was a hawk of a Democrat. She did not like the uh, she didn't like the Democrats going wobbly on the Soviet Union. She decided that she would ally with Ronald Reagan in large part because of the incompetencies and failures of Jimmy Carter and of Ted Kennedy in the 1980 presidential campaign. Reagan brought her into the administration and in so doing, he made her the ambassador to the United Nations and made it a cabinet level position and uh, allowed her to uh, jointly work with him and Casper Weinberger and, um, oh, uh, was it, well, yeah, Weinberger uh, and George Schultz, George Schultz, uh, Secretary of State, Uh, to essentially collaborate with Western powers on bringing an end to the Soviet Union, or at least undermining the Soviet Union. The thing that that lured Kirkpatrick into the administration of of Ronald Reagan was his firm, committed stance that the Soviet Union was an evil empire, and it needed to be dealt with, and it couldn't be contained. Jimmy Carter had embraced this containment policy. If we were going to let the Soviets have a sphere of influence, and we were going to have a sphere of influence, and people like Kirkpatrick understood, and a number of of, uh, Scoop Jackson Democrats— uh, Hawk Democrats who had come through World War II, they understood that you couldn't negotiate uh, with the Soviets, you couldn't negotiate with the communists. They saw that the geostrategic uh, detente that the Carter administration wanted to establish as deeply flawed because the Soviets could, based on their rhetoric and ideology, have no sphere of influence unless it was global. Well, the Democrats increasingly become more became more and more pacifist, and in the run-up to 1984, uh, Ted Kennedy began reaching out to the Soviets. Now, a, a lot of a lot of conservatives uh, take at face value that that Kennedy was trying to get the Soviets to engage in the American political process in 1984 uh, to help Walter Mondale. It's actually more complicated than that. 
What Kennedy was actually trying to do in reaching out to the Soviets in 1983 is he believed that the Reagan's rhetoric, remember Reagan was going, Mr. Gorbachev, uh, tear down this wall later than that, but before that, talking about an evil empire, talking about he wanted a Star Wars-style defense system for the United States. Kennedy believed Reagan was ratcheting up uh, rhetoric leading us to war. And as a result, he was reaching out to the Soviets, trying to get uh, Andropov, the then Soviet uh, leader, to come to the United States and engage in a PR campaign with media outlets who he assured Andropov would be sympathetic because none of them wanted war. They had gone through World War II. These people had had seen World War II or they had seen Vietnam. They did not want to go back into that. Uh, So please come engage in a PR campaign, tone things down that would undermine Reagan in that way. It wasn't a direct interference in the election per se. It was take the Soviet Union issue off the table, and then that would allow us to focus on domestic issues in the United States. So the Democrats go to San Francisco. They nominate Walter Mondale. The Republicans, I believe they're in San Diego or Los Angeles for their convention. I rem- Now, I was, I was in third or fourth grade when this happened, but I actually remember this is the first political convention I remember ever seeing. We were at my cousin's house in Houston, Texas. I was playing on the floor. I remember that. I remember Kirkpatrick on in the background because I want to know who this old woman was. But Kirkpatrick, uh, she, she says this, talking about the Democrats in San Francisco at the time. They said that saving Grenada from terror and totalitarianism was the wrong thing to do. They didn't blame Cuba or the communists for threatening American students and murdering Grenadians. They blamed the United States instead. But then somehow they always blame America first. When our Marines sent to Lebanon on a multinational peacekeeping mission with the consent of the United States Congress were murdered in their sleep, the blame America first crowd didn't blame the terrorists who murdered the Marines. They blamed the United States, but then they always blame America first. When the Soviet Union walked out of arms control negotiations and refused to even discuss the issues, the San Francisco Democrats didn't blame Soviet intransigence. They blamed the United States, but then they always blame America first. When Marxist dictators shoot their way to power in Central America, the San Francisco Democrats don't blame the guerrillas and their Soviet allies. They blame United States policies of 100 years ago. But then they always blame America first. And by then she had the crowd chanting it with her. They always blame America first. Now, the difference between then and now is that the the people who ran the newsrooms then were the World War II generation. And the reporters were of the Vietnam generation, and they didn't like war. They didn't like Reagan's uh, belligerence. They didn't like his rhetoric, but they were firmly on the side of the United States. The reporters who were in charge on 9-11 didn't like George W. Bush. But on 9-11, despite what happened in the 2000 election, they were willing to give George W. Bush some latitude to try to rally the country. But now, orange man bad. And what you're seeing is the generation of reporters who allowed George W. Bush to rally the nation on 9-11 have given away to a bunch of left-wing reporters who came of age in Barack Obama's administration who believe history began when Barack Obama got elected and that the purpose of journalists is to help bend the arc of history towards democratic social justice. They came from left-wing think tanks. For example, you know Valerie Jarrett, who worked for Barack Obama, CNN fired their morning anchor so that they could give Valerie Jarrett's daughter an anchor chair. CNN hired a as a national security reporter who is now an anchor, an Obama administration official. MSNBC likewise has hired an army of left-wing activists to become reporters. ABC, CBS, NBC, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The LA Times, and the like. They're hiring liberals, progressives 
from left-wing groups like Think Progress, left-wing media outlets, or Talking Points Memo, a left-wing media outlet, which actually does a good job, but is definitely of the left, and they bring them in as supposed mainstream objective reporters, and their underlying presupposition is that conservatives bad, Christians bad, Republicans bad, small government bad, and potentially America bad, and we're seeing that as they're willing to gravitate to and run Chinese propaganda. Take, for example, this Politico story. This is the editorial editor of Politico writing this story. The headline, not the world's number one, Chinese social media piles on the U.S. The verdict is in China has outperformed while the once respected American system has disastrously faltered. On March 29th, President Donald Trump stood in the Rose Garden and offered a coronavirus forecast. If we have between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths, we all together have done a very good job. The president minute his self-congratulations. He'd been shown a projection of American death toll as high as 2.2 million. But in China, the statement landed very differently. On Weibo, the country's equivalent of Twitter, Trump's declaration sounded like an astonishing statement of defeat by China's major geopolitical rival. This is Chinese communist propaganda run as a news story in Politico. One of the things that is not mentioned in the story is that if you're a Chinese and you can access Twitter, you are a government goon. You're a stooge for the communist regime in China if you're able to access Twitter because normal Chinese citizens aren't allowed to access Twitter. It's blocked by the Great Firewall of China. CNN, you will recall, ran a story that was nothing but communist propaganda from China about the Chinese military and how the Chinese Navy was dominant in the Southeast Asian South Asian Sea. Never mind that their supreme aircraft carrier that they trotted out actually had a fire on it. They ignored that. Reuters has taken stories from the Chinese communist press that are propaganda and repackaged them as actual news stories and sent them around the world on their wire service. We are increasingly seeing around the world secular reporters who do not like Donald Trump and who blame America first picking up Chinese propaganda and rerunning it as uh, fabled tales of how wonderful China is doing. You know, the United States, frankly, under the Trump administration, is abdicating its leadership on leading a multinational coalition against China. There is clearly a desire there. The French are mad. The Spanish are mad. The Italians are mad. The Greeks are mad. The, the Germans are mad. The Czechs are mad. The British are mad. The Swedish are mad. The Norwegians are mad. The Australians are mad. Uh, the Taiwanese are mad. The Malaysians are mad. The Vietnamese are mad. The, the Japanese and the South Koreans are mad. And they're waiting for American leadership, and the president's so focused on just tariffs, he's distracted and not leading this coalition. Now is the time for us to develop a better policy against China. The big difference between now and the 1980s, though, is that we know for certain that your average American reporter is going to be on the side of the Chinese. And that should trouble every single person, including the Democrats, very greatly. Because even a lot of Democrats do believe that the United States First Amendment is sacrosanct. Despite what you hear on college campuses, your average Democrat out there supports the First Amendment. China does not. And the freedom of the press isn't free in China. And it is remarkable that because Orange Man bad, there are so many people on the left who would rather go with China than go with the United States right now. When your views on freedom and liberty are determined by who is in the White House, that's on you. And we should all be troubled. So many reporters have decided they'd rather go with China. One of the other issues 
that we're dealing with, and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. At the bottom of the hour, Jessica Anderson, who's the new executive director of Heritage Action for America, is going to join me uh, to talk about reopening the states and, and the path forward for reopening the states because we're going to have to reopen at some point. And listen, I feel confident and credible saying this because I've been one of the more prominent voices on the right about the need to shelter in place to flatten the curve. And now that we flattened the curve about the need to reopen and pointing out how so many of the people who also advocated flattening the curve are now taking the position that we have to stay home permanently uh, as long as the virus is there, which is insane. I personally am beginning to wonder how many people out there are insisting we cannot restart the economy because they're afraid a rebound will hurt Donald Trump or will help Donald Trump in 2020. I don't think it is a uh, coincidence that some of the most prominent voices now in America on the need for us to all stay home permanently are people who are aggressively opposed to the reelection of the president. There was a time where it was an appropriate public policy decision to keep everyone at home for a month, month and a half, two months so that we could stop the spread of the virus or at least slow it down, not stop it, but slow it down so that our hospitals had time to handle capacity, so that we had time to get testing up to speed, so that we had time to stockpile PPE and figure out how to uh, sterilize and reuse them and, and get a ventilator supply going. We have done all of those things in the last month and a half nationally. We have not maxed out our ventilator supply now. We have ample PPE. There are some isolated exceptions, and the media is focusing on the exceptions as opposed to the rule. Our hospitals have capacity. I mean, look what's happened in Georgia with our hospital capacity now. We have overflow facilities at the Georgia World Congress Center. Uh, Phoebe Putney in Albany is starting to slow down, which is a really good thing. I increasingly think that the major opponents in opposition are increasingly doing so from partisan framing, not public policy framing. They want to keep us shut down. They want to keep us locked up uh, because they want to hurt Trump. Uh, Orange man bad, keep everyone inside, wreck the economy, that helps them. I mean, this this has been the thing, has it not, the entire time uh, that, that a good economy was going to help Trump. I mean, you've actually had Democrats talking down the economy for the past year. Remember the Democratic debates? Billionaires should not exist, except Bill Gates. And now suddenly, they don't have to talk down the economy because the economy is is kind of wrecked. But yet they want to keep us home and keep the economy wrecked. Now, listen, I, I understand there are pockets of the country. There, there really are pockets of the country where the virus continues to spread, where hospitals continue to be overwhelmed, and where people do still need to stay home. Part of the problem here isn't just the partisan angling on Trump. Part of the problem is, you know, the Democrats view us increasingly as as a nation that should be thoroughly governed by Washington, and the states should be administrative subsidiaries of Washington, not actually semi-sovereign nations, which is what they actually are under the framing of the Constitution. And they think it should be one size fits all, but a nation of 350 million people cannot be one size fits all. I mean, their solution is socialized medicine. Do you know the six worst affected countries on planet Earth per capita are all Western European countries that have socialized medicine? 
Yay, socialized medicine. We're not supposed to point that out, though, are we? Because that would undermine one of the core Democratic talking points, just like we need to get back to work. It is Eric Erickson here. This here is my show, and the phone number, if you want to be a part of it, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. One of my favorite organizations on planet Earth is the Heritage Foundation, but also Heritage Action for America, where I have a bunch of friends, although they all seem to have moved around, and it's hard to keep up with all of them, but... Jessica Anderson is still there in charge as the executive director of HAVA. Welcome. How are you? Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How's the family doing? Family's good. I got another another little one. She's six months old. Man, I saw the Instagram picture, I think. So, gosh. Mm. Oh, to, 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 to be that age again where we're... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? She I wouldn't no trade worries. my sleep for it, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, that's all right <laughs> now that we're not here to talk family reunion time we're here to talk reopening the country and you guys have some ideas on this and i out of the gate i want to i've been thinking a lot about this listening to some of the rhetoric and really seeing the goalposts move that mm. it was we needed to stay home to flatten the curve which i agreed with but now it's we need to stay home until the virus is eradicated which seems like the loudest voices are the ones who are also the ones who were worried the economy would help the president and it seems like there actually is this under line political presupposition that if the economy rebounds, it might help the president. So everybody better mm-hmm. stay home. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think when we started this process, it was all about flattening the curve. And now we're seeing daily new new cases are on the decline for almost a month where we've limited the virus's spread. And now is really the time to get back to work. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. And that's where our petition comes in. We're pushing for a reopening, but one that's based on data and based on the uniqueness of different parts of the country. So we recognize that, uh, you know, Atlanta, Georgia is an entirely different situation than, let's say, Myrtle Beach than South Florida, where I'm from. And so if we if we if we as conservatives continue to argue that a one size fits all plan doesn't work for things like healthcare or socialism, then let's apply it to coronavirus here. And so. Our petition is really simple. It's really clear. It's six principles. People are free to travel. Governors should only implement stay-at-home orders in targeted manners. Businesses should be open to the public. Governors should apply limited restrictions where the virus's incidences are high. And we walk through these principles and we're asking Americans to pledge their agreement and to agree that we as the American people are are strong leaders who can uphold and fiercely protect our constitutional liberties, especially in a time uh, like like this, where we're in not only the health, but also the economic crisis, as you alluded to. Well, okay, this makes a lot of sense to me. And, and going back to your initial point is what I'm seeing. In fact, Sean Trendy had this great article at Real Clear Politics where he mapped it out that we are a 50 states and each we've got over a, a thousand counties among the states and they're not all similarly situated and it just seems like yet again on the left there's this one-size-fits-all policy Mm -hmm. where until the virus isn't spreading anywhere no one anywhere can go out as opposed to atlanta is not myrtle beach is not south florida is not new york and why not take a regional approach yeah that's exactly right and and a regional approach is is important here because it allows, it allows government to respond to the people it's closest to. And we've been talking a lot about this and that we're out of habit, I think, as the American people of really knowing who our mayors are. 
who are your local officials? You know, I know who my member of Congress is. I know who the president is, but really drilling down at that local level. So as, as the, as the advice has moved from the president and the task force down to governors, then to mayors, it's trickling down. And, and this is an important part of American society. I think we get a refresher to, and we then have this ability now to know those elected officials to urge them what's best for my family, what's best for my business. And then as things begin to open up, you know, you can actually have a systematic phased approach where governors can focus on, on who can return to work um, and, and allowing flexibility at, at, that, at that local level. And so um, that's what this petition is about. And, and so far we're at uh, just over 50,000 pledges. 50,000 signatures. And so we're driving to get to 100. Um, I'd love to be there, you know, in a week. And we're going to deliver these petitions to the National Governors Association, to the governors that are lagging behind. Like you look at the Michigan governor that is just completely out of touch with her people right now. And we're going to deliver them to the president. Now, how do people go about signing the petition? You can sign it at heritageaction.com. It's on the front page of our website. All we're asking is your your name and and where you're from. Uh, So we can get a good swath of Americans all across the country, coast to coast, uh, aligning with these six main principles for reopening. Now, let me shift gears for, from reopening here for just a minute to the bailouts, um, because I, I generally know where where uh, Heritage Action is on these things. But it, it does continue to strike me that we are engaged in a level of moral hazard where mm-hmm. states want bailouts and they're hiding behind uh, the coronavirus situation, when in fact they made a bunch of very bad pension decisions and elsewhere, uh, otherwise contract decisions with unions, and now want a lot of states to bail them out for their bad decision making, where they will then engage in more bad decision making once they get Washington to bail them out. It's actually one of the most frustrating parts of this argument is of this of this crisis is the bailout argument. So on one side, you've got the liberal left led by. You know, Governor Cuomo from New York, who's just leaning in on getting additional funds for the state of New York for the coronavirus. What he doesn't realize and what he refuses to acknowledge is that federal taxpayers have already sent trillions of dollars to the states as part of the CARES Act and as part of the relief measures that Congress passed. So states are already getting, when it's broken down, close to $250 billion directly for coronavirus relief expenses. And so, you know, the fact that he's out there saying we need more, and then when he started saying, well, we need unrestricted aid, that's just code for bailouts. And it's code for saying, okay, my state budget is underwater, and not only do I need to bail that out, but let's talk about where the money is going. You know, I was always taught to follow follow the dollars. And when you look at some of these states, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, you're actually seeing that they're paying down pension debt, and then they're starting to turn around and give this money directly to the to the unions who are then running ads against Republicans. So there's actually a, a, a thread here of the relief dollars from American taxpayers being used as partisan weapons, which is incredibly disappointing and something we need to be vigilant against. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm concerned about Republicans uh, in Congress in particular who – I, I, Mitch McConnell is certainly standing up on this argument, but I, I'm I'm worried about the ongoing assault from Democrats and, frankly, members of the press who aren't portraying the situation accurately and, and having some Republicans begin to cave on this issue. 
Well, we're uh, a number of senators. We had about six senators come out yesterday signing a letter that they wouldn't support any legislation that includes a state bailout. That's a start. Six good. is good. We need more. And so we need senators that um, we're going to stand up against this. And we need senators to be creative um, in the solution. So not only do states already have funds for coronavirus health impact, but you also look at a state like Texas that has a really great rainy day fund. If you need additional dollars in your state, tap into that. This seems like a great opportunity uh, to use that rainy day fund. So there's other ideas that are out there that I think the Senate can really lead on. And, you know, credit where credit is due. Mitch McConnell is dug in on this. And my hope is that um, he stays that strong. The president had a tweet about five days ago that was really helpful. Um, But more and more in the Senate need to come out against this and just letting Nancy Pelosi know her $1 trillion bailout that she's requesting for states is a non-starter. You, well, that that is encouraging. I, I I had missed the news about the six senators coming out, and and I, it continues to concern me that in the financial situation of dealing with the virus, very much like um, I, I know we, when Needham and Chappie were there, he those two and I had had this conversation before uh, that. After 9-11, the government went on a spending binge and mm. hit a lot of the spending saying, oh, it's war spending, it's war spending. And actually, the war spending was all budgeted for. It was all the domestic policy initiatives uh, that kind of blew through the budget caps and, and added to the national debt. And it just seems like there really isn't any concern right now. And obviously, we're in a crisis and there is money that needs to be spent. But even a lot of the Republicans in Washington who were one time committed to small government just don't seem to be so committed right now to the idea that we are going to have a fiscal reckoning coming due at some point. Well, I I think when we started this process, what was it, eight weeks ago now, there was a a scramble in Washington. You know, what is this virus? What do we do? And the first reaction was everyone needs to stay home, slow the spread. And then it became, okay, can't let the cure be worse than the disease itself. The president tweeted that infamous tweet, and that really shifted the debate where everyone then started, lawmakers started throwing spending ideas really at the wall in the hopes that any of them would land to stimulate the economy. The reality of this is, though, is that, you know, direct cash payments to individuals and and stimulus spending doesn't actually work to put America back to work. What we need is we need jobs. And so our principles throughout this that we've really been, been, been pushing the Senate and the House to reconsider is creating public policy around keeping the employer attached to his employee. It's not that we don't want people, you know, to, to, to get, you know, funds to be able to pay their rent. We want people to have jobs. And so at the end of this crisis, we want them to have something to return to. We want businesses to be able to reopen. And so pushing everyone into unemployment insurance is, is a completely wrong step, just as just spending billions of dollars without targeted and temporary measures in place is the wrong step. Now, I do think that I do think that many in the House, especially our our friends at the House Freedom Caucus and the Republican Study Committee, have realized this. And, and, you know, it's not too late. Uh, It's never too late to do the right thing. And it's certainly not too late now. Um, And they need to they need to turn the spigot off for spending and specifically against these state bailouts. Let the money that's been infused into the market. Let it let's see if it's going to work. And let's go back and fix some of these problems like the unemployment insurance problem where people are being paid more to stay home than to have their job. Let's fix that. Let's fix some of the mortgage forbearance problems of the bills. 
and let's create public policy that allows the individual to stay with their job and not line the streets for unemployment and welfare. So that's that's where my head's at going into this next week um, as we fight for whatever this next package is going to be. But Eric, I got to tell you, Pelosi is out there with her laundry list um, mm-hmm. of, of basically a liberal wish list, everything she's wanted from mail-in and internet voting um, to redistricting. I mean, it's just, it's like whack-a-mole. Another Kennedy Center bailout. (laughs) Right. And then her trillion-dollar bailout. So we we have our work cut out for us. But, you know, as usual, the American people are up for the challenge. And and I'm I'm encouraged that so many see through the rhetoric and see the partisanship and, and are trying to get past it. Well, let's circle back to the beginning, though. You guys have this petition. It is to to reopen the country, to do so on a regional basis uh, in areas that make sense. Uh, and if people want to sign up for that or learn more about Heritage Action, where are they headed? HeritageAction.com. And then the petition's right on the front page. Tell Governors Open American Society. There's six principles, and they look specifically at what we should be doing for travel, businesses, and testing, and then our role as Americans to uphold and fiercely protect our constitutional liberties. So it's two parts, really simple, heritageaction.com. Well, listen, I appreciate you stopping by. You know, I'm a big fan of HAVA and, and happy to help you guys. Well, thanks for having me. You've, you've been with us from the beginning. So if anyone knows Heritage Action, it's you, Eric. So thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Jessica Anderson, she is the executive director of Heritage Action for America. Go to heritageaction.com. Uh, you can find out more. They've also got a great scorecard, by the way. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's always been one of the better scorecards on the right, uh, along with club for growth. Uh, they both do great jobs of holding members of Congress accountable. So you can go check them out, uh, heritageaction.com and sign the petition. It actually is a very thoughtful plan. Unlike some of the plans that are circulating out there on just reopen everything. It is mindful of the fact that there are regions of the country that just can't reopen right now. New York city. Uh, being one of those areas where people still probably need to shelter in place given the spread of the virus. Uh, But uh, there are other parts of the country, like parts of Georgia, for example, that could open right now, taking reasonable efforts. And, of course, the state is, and is so are Democratic states, and you don't see the media blasting them. I wonder why. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I haven't done this in a while, but I got an email yesterday from someone who could figure out how to call in. They knew 97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. There is a C and a K. Uh, I realize most people spell their name with just a C. I don't. I spell it with the C and the K, the best of both worlds. Let's go to the phones to Jeffrey calling from Woodstock. Welcome to the program, sir. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Uh, hey, um, I had a question uh, regarding the the news stories I saw yesterday with, I, I believe, the IHME model. Mm-hmm. The projected death toll in the U.S. being revised up significantly to like 130,000 or so. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get your take on that. Do you think places that have opened up may have opened too soon or... Or what's going on? I honestly got kind of depressed about that. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, we got to find the right balance, and it does depend on people doing the right things. Um, if you feel feel bad, stay home, wear a mask in public, which, frankly, in Georgia, I have, I've suddenly seen a major drop-off in people wearing masks, which is concerning. Um, so there, there are concerns, but keep in mind that we were always going to have an uptick if we reopened. 
because the virus is going to spread, and, and particularly among the elderly and vulnerable populations, there are going to be problems. But uh, it is concerning by how much they are uh, revising the models. And for people who say the models are conspiracy, I talked to a great epidemiologist last week who actually made the point that the whole purpose of modeling is tell us what could go wrong and our job is to beat the model. Uh, it's not that the models are wrong. It's that they're not, they're supposed to be wrong. We're supposed to respond to what the model shows so that we make the model wrong. And we've been doing that. Uh, we are, interestingly enough, crossing uh, 70,000 deaths, which remember, uh, originally there were a lot of people, particularly conservatives on my side, who said we would never get 40,000 deaths. Well, we're crossing into 70. And there's the great conspiracy that they're ringing all, that's a whole lot of, that's a whole lot of dead people to rig a conspiracy and, and well, and then, well, no, 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 comorbidities, comorbidities. Okay. But the same thing happens with the flu. You know, it's not like the flu kills healthy people and ignores the people with comorbidities. The, the same thing. People with comorbidities are more susceptible to illness and death. Uh, it, ultimately what's going on here is there are a lot of people who are so desperate to get back to work, understandably so. A lot of people who want to get the economy up and going, understandably so, that they're making utilitarian arguments on whose life is more precious. And that's unfortunate. All life is precious if you're pro-life. We do have to find a way to get the economy going again, though. And I don't know that the models are contemplating some of the steps. Part of the problem here is that the modeling, like, like in my conversation with Jessica Anderson that I was talking about, is the Democrats view us as a homogenous nation and the models view us as one entity. And you've got to dive into the models to see. I, I mean, for example, let me let me pull this up here on the fly. Bring up my web browser here. Uh, IHME Georgia. Uh, let's see what what does the Georgia IHME modeling say? The model up. Oh, they've they've changed it. They've changed it. Let's see. Uh, they're now projecting four thousand nine hundred thirteen deaths in Georgia. They had been projecting. Uh, 1,000 to 220,000. Now, here's the interesting thing is according to the IHME modeling, Georgia is never going to max out its ICU, ICU space and it's never going to max out its use of ventilators and it's never going to max out our hospital resources. Isn't Wasn't that the purpose in flattening the curve? Wasn't that the purpose in flattening the curve. Uh, there's going to be a rebound. That's just, that. that's a fact. There's going to be a rebound. The question is how much of a rebound. And frankly, that has everything to do with you. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that disparagingly. What I mean is that if you do what you need to do, only go out as you need to. Don't hang out recreationally. Wear a mask when you go in public. Wash your hands. You're not going to get the virus, and so the virus isn't going to spread through you to your family. Your family's not then going to spread it to other people, and we're going to be fine. Uh, ultimately, here's the thing. If you live your life in fear and don't leave your house, okay. Most people aren't going to do that. They're going to want to get back out and about. There are ways to do it responsibly, though. I saw some idiot legislator in Ohio says he's not going to wear a mask because that would be covering the image of God, that that we are all created in the image of God, so he can't wear a mask because that would be covering the image of God. That, that that's, that's stupid, stupid theology. 
Can you imagine you go to the hospital, sir, you need to put on an oxygen mask? No, I'm sorry, I have to die because otherwise I'm going to cover the image of God. Uh, it, it, don't hide your contrarian a-holishness behind your theology because that's what that actually is. Yes, you'll have to follow along with that sentence to understand what I just said. I mean, that that that's what this guy is doing, is he just wants to be a contrarian, and so he's hiding behind Jesus to do it. Don't don't hide behind Jesus to be a contrarian. If you don't wear a mask in public, the odds are the virus is going to rebound. Now, we do have something that the model I don't think is contemplating. Summer heat and humidity. And in the South, that matters. If you really want to see that God's hand in this, consider the cold front that's come through and the temperatures are dropping at a time the temperatures should be going up. Like, well, God, what, why why are you keeping the temperatures in the range for the virus to spread? And we're in May now. <laughs> but no, seriously, summer heat and humidity will slow it down. And the models haven't contemplated that. But again, the models are only as good as the data. And they're to show us the worst case scenario. And we're supposed to fight to never get to what the models say. You know, it's it's one of those things where you you get so many windows open on your computer screen, you don't know which buttons to press anymore because you can't see any of them. Sorry. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to call in and be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I want to do a little bit of due diligence here before I get into the, the other uh, news of the day. Uh, there are so many seats right now uh, that are up with special with, with elections, and I want to make sure that you have the list of all the candidates who are running. Uh, there are a bunch of them running, and I want to start with the 14th Congressional District. That is Tom Graves' seat, and let me give you the names of all the people who qualified up there. Uh, John Barge, who is running as a Republican, Ben Bullock running as a Republican, Kevin Cook running as a Republican, John Cowan running as a Republican, Clayton Fuller running as a Republican, Marjorie Taylor Greene running as a Republican, Andy Gunther running as a Republican, Bill Hembry running as a Republican, Matt Laridge running as a Republican, and Kevin Van Osdell running as a uh, Democrat. He's the only Democrat running in the race. Uh, that is... Tom Graves' seat. Uh, the other one, let me see if I can find it here. Um, no, it's not. No, I don't want to do that one. Um, is uh, It is Doug Collins's seat up in northeast Georgia. Here are all the people who qualified to run for it. Uh, Michael Bogus, Republican, Paul Brown, Republican, Andrew Clyde, Republican, Matt Gertler, Republican, Maria Strickland, Republican, Kevin Tanner, Republican, Ethan Underwood, Republican, Kelly Weeks, Republican, John Wilkinson, Republican, Devin Pandy, Democrat, uh, Brooke Siskin, Democrat, and Dan Wilson, Democrat. Now, um, the, the you've got three Democrats running in the race, and uh, this seat leads Republican. This one and the Tom Graves seat are going to be Republican wins in Georgia, barring some uh, unforeseen abnormality. The other one to, to really focus on is the seventh. That is the open seat where Rob Woodall, that's the Gwinnett County area. 
Uh, you've got uh, Lisa uh, Noel Babbage, Republican, Mark Gonsalves, Republican, Lynn Holmrich, Republican, Zach Kinnamore, Republican, Rich McCormick, Republican, Renee Unterman, Republican, Eugene Yu, Republican, Carolyn Bordeaux, Democrat, John Eves, Democrat, uh, Nabila Islam, Democrat, uh, Kara Karinchak, Democrat, Brenda Romero, Democrat, Rashid Malik, Democrat. This seat leans to the Democrats right now. It could be a Democratic pickup. Uh, although the polling in the 6th Congressional District is not good for Lucy McBath. Lucy McBath is the incumbent Democrat who beat Karen Handel. Karen Handel running again for the seat, and we'll see what happens there, but the polling is not good for McBath in that seat. Those are that that's kind of the lay of the land and and I need to probably do a good job of particularly in the, in the 14th and the 9th getting those people uh on here so that you can be introduced to them because it is a very difficult time right now uh to run for office. The, the other story I wanted to uh, put on your radar. You, you know, Sonny Purdue was here a couple of weeks ago talking to me about the supply chain issues and and he admitted there are problems in our supply chain right now. And a lot of it has to do with government regulation. And the president only has so much clout to be able to repeal certain regulations. The reason is because he's got to have authority from Congress to be able to declare an emergency, to be able to waive some of the regulations. And Congress is not allowing him to do it. The Democrats don't want him to because they're afraid that he will waive labor regulations, which which they don't want. Well, let me read you. This is from Christopher Quinn in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from yesterday, and or from Sunday, rather. I didn't have a chance to get to it yesterday. Cows are munching down zucchini, yellow squash, and cabbage that Southern Valley Fruit and Vegetable Farms grew and picked for restaurants and other institutions. It's one way the company is trying to make use of the glut of South Georgia vegetables caused by the closure of dining spots, schools, and other big buyers. South Georgia farmers ship food from Florida to Canada, but the closure cost them 40 to 50% of their market. Growers are caught between being unable to sell all their crops and selling what they can in a flooded market with dropping prices. The pandemic has put farmers in line for a third, for some a fourth, tough year, thanks to bad weather and the Chinese tariff war blockages. Georgia's $13.7 billion agriculture industry is likely to see losses that will ripple up and down the economic ladder, especially in rural communities like Colquitt County, where Southern Valley is located. The vegetable business brought $167 million into the county in 2018, according to the numbers from the University of Georgia. If commerce continues during our season the way it was during Florida season, then you'll see the same effect you saw in Florida. It's inevitable, said John Schwalz, the executive officer at Southern Valley. There, farmers plowed under thousands of acres of fresh vegetables and with them their hopes to avert a loss in 2020. Besides turning vegetables into cow fodder, Southern Valley has donated food from its 3,000 South Georgia acres to help agencies across the Southeast. But some of the corn, eggplants, peppers, broccoli, and tomatoes ripening in the fields are likely to go to waste. The picking season is just starting. Gary Black, the state agriculture commissioner, along with the University of Georgia's agriculture community and its network of farm cooperative extension offices are scrambling to create markets for Georgia produce from asparagus to zucchini. Also, some help could come from the Federal Department of Agriculture under Sonny Purdue, which is starting a new National Farmers to Families Food Box program to buy and distribute $3 billion in meat and produce. It's rare you can see a storm coming, Gary Black said, but Florida's sudden collapse of its winter vegetable market gave Georgia a good forecast. You know, I, I I, I, I don't know Gary Black. I think I've met him once or twice. 
I don't really know him, but I got to tell you, uh, he's been a very good ag commissioner in Georgia. And he's put into place a lot of plans to help the state. But our farmers are going to be hit hard. And on top of that, you got another issue that's not getting a lot of coverage. That's the peach crop. We had a very mild winter. There were not a lot of days below freezing to sweeten the peaches in Georgia, which you need. And that's going to impact farmers in South Georgia as well. Uh, You know, and my wife would kill for access to fresh vegetables right now. Uh, we went to a to a local um, a farm, a peach farm, the other day, and and we didn't get out of our car because there was the crowd was so big, and nobody was wearing masks. We didn't actually feel comfortable being in a crowd like that, particularly given my wife's underlying conditions. Um, I wish you know that I'm not a fan of the farmers market in Macon. If you've ever been to Middle Georgia. Uh, there's a farmer's market and it's not in a convenient location and I've been there and there's never anybody there. There's like one or two stands. There used to be a great butcher shop there and the butcher shop is closed. Uh, there was a, I guess the tag office may be still there, but I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm always flummoxed by the farmer's market and making, cause it, it just seems like there's never actually a whole lot of farmers there selling stuff. It's a weird setup. Um, And I would love to have more access on a regular basis to fresh vegetables. You know, I'm one of those people who I would actually rather go to the grocery store every morning and plan out a meal for the day from that. Uh, Maybe it's the it's the latent chef in me, Um, although I can't right now. Our oven broke. Uh, But nonetheless, our ag situation in the state is not going to be good because of the virus and because of the weather we've had. And you've still got farmers in South Georgia who are trying to recover, and that's going to have a serious, serious impact on us. Uh, So keep the farmers in mind. And frankly, where you can buy local, you should be buying local to help your Georgia farmers if you can. Now, I want to pivot uh, to some good news that has come up. Uh, Israel is announcing it may have found a human antibody that stops uh, the coronavirus. This is a joint statement from the Israeli Ministry of Defense and the Israel Institute for Biological Research. A significant breakthrough has been achieved in finding an antidote to the coronavirus that attacks the virus and can neutralize it in the sick body. According to the Institute's researchers, the antibody development phase is over. A goal for international companies to produce the antibody in commercial quantities is now set. Now, the original statement is in Hebrew. Let me read you some from what the Jerusalem Post is reporting. Uh, The Netherlands is confirming the research. There are researchers in the Netherlands who have been doing the same research, and they have come out and said, yes, this is true. The Israel Institute for Biological Research has completed the development phase of COVID-19 antibody or passive vaccine. According to the Defense Ministry, Defense Minister Naftali Bennett visited the Nest Ziona lab on Monday and was briefed by the research team who revealed a breakthrough antibody that attacks the virus and neutralizes in the body. IIBR, that is the Israel Institute for Biological Research, is now working to patent its antibody and secure a contract for its commercial development. Now, that's great. Uh, A second Israel research team, MIGVAX, has also reported it's close to completing the first phase of development of a coronavirus vaccine. Now, let me jump over to the Netherlands. The Bloomberg News has this story. Uh, Scientists create antibody that defeats coronavirus in the lab. Scientists created a monoclonal antibody that can defeat the new coronavirus in the lab, an early but promising step in efforts to find treatments 
and curb the pandemic spread. The experimental antibody has neutralized the virus in cell cultures. While that's early in the drug development process before animal research and human trials, the antibody may help prevent or treat COVID-19 and related diseases in the future, either alone or in a drug combination. More research is needed to see whether the findings are confirmed in the clinical setting and how precisely the antibody defeats the virus. The antibody, known as 47D11, targets the spike protein that gives the new coronavirus a crown-like shape and lets it enter human cells. Now, in, in essentially, this is my way. This is dumbing down to such a level as to almost be too dumb. But in my mind, it's the easiest way to understand it. What this antibody does is it wraps around the coronavirus. So that, you know, the, a coronavirus gets its name from the little spikes around the coronavirus that make it look like it's wearing a crown. And the antibody wraps around it so that the coronavirus can't use those spikes to penetrate cells. That is the the super dumbed down explanation. I am not a scientist or doctor. I, I needed to make it easy for people to understand. But that's encouraging news. Uh, it appears that this is uh, the, the Dutch are using the same antibody the Israelis are using and are not as far along in the research, but their research is more uh, documented than what the Israelis have produced. So that's encouraging. Likewise, remdesivir is showing more promise. I got to say something, and I meant to bring this up earlier and, and didn't get a chance. Do you know we've now got remdesivir truthers on the left? This again gets me to the idea that there are some people out there who want to use shelter in place to keep the economy from recovering to hurt Trump. I want to make sure that, hush up, Siri. I, I want to make sure that you understand I'm talking about a minority of people. I don't think it's a majority of Democrats. I don't think it is a majority of, of left-wing pundits out there, although it may very well become a majority. But it is certainly a growing number of voices, even if they're in the minority who continue to advocate shelter in place, not because they want to stop the virus, but because they want to stop Trump. And they're afraid that if the economy rebounds, that it'll help Trump. And there's a real overlap. In the Venn diagram, it would be a single circle of progressives who are convinced a rebounding economy will help the president and progressives who have become remdesivir truthers that, oh, the president and his team are touting remdesivir Therefore, this drug must be bad. In fact, there are two small studies that suggest that remdesivir is not as good a drug as some claim. But those were small studies. Larger studies at Emory and other facilities around the country, I believe one at the Mayo Clinic that the National Institutes of Health and Dr. Fauci looked at, actually have said that these drugs, uh, remdesivir in particular, actually is a good drug and does alleviate symptoms. That a person who typically would have a 10-day viral run uh, can be reduced to five days, and a person with a five-day run can dramatically be reduced down to a day or two of having active symptoms. It speeds up recovery. Now, the key is getting it into people because once people get too critical, remdesivir does not appear to work. And that seems to be the hangup on some of the early trials that these remdesivir truthers are, are uh, flagging and throwing at people that when the, much like hydroxychloroquine, by the way, that when the virus is too far gone in someone, these drugs don't seem to be very effective against it. But someone who gets in the hospital and starts on remdesivir or hydroxychloroquine, there's actually a lot of data out there now that suggests they are benefited from early treatment, remdesivir more so than hydroxychloroquine. 
uh, and and um, Gilead Science now is making hydrox or is making remdesivir available to the public at large. They're giving all their samples to the government for free, and now they're being attacked by left wing critics who think, well, if you can give all the drugs for free now, surely you can give all the drugs for free forever. There's no winning with these people. There's hope on the horizon, though. The Israelis and the Dutch are both making progress. The Americans are making progress. Uh, the British are making progress. And now we've got multiple drugs that appear to be effective as well. These are all good signs. And that, again, is why I think by the time we get to August, the situation will be dramatically different. And that is why I also think you're going to hear a whole lot of people on the left start saying, we can't go out again. We've got to wreck the economy because they don't want people to go out in the economy to suddenly rebound and have that hurt, uh, help the president in the run-up to the election. I want to give you guys a, a, a lesson in how data is being reported and why I think um, the media needs to do a better job on this. Uh, I, you know, yesterday I mentioned in the first hour of the program yesterday, on May 1st, there were 128 cases. Now, Last week, when I ended the week, uh, there were less than 50 cases. And it went up uh, by Monday morning at 9 when I started yesterday, 128 cases. When I went off the air at noon, Monday had gone up to 136 cases. Uh, by 1 p.m., Monday or May 1st, it had gone up to 144 cases. By the time I started my second show yesterday... The May 1st numbers had gone up to 158, and today, this morning, it is 10.30 roughly, 10.26 a.m. Uh, May 1st now has, and I'm tracking this um, as well, May 1st now has 179 cases. Now, why? Well, because not all the tests come back at the same rate, and the Department of Public Health is tracking cases based on the day the test was conducted, not the day all the tests are delivered. Now, here's the thing. If you go to Google and you look for May 1st, what do you find? You would find that May 1st had 1,232 cases. 1,232 cases on May 1st. If you look at if you look at the actual data from Georgia though, May 1st has 179 cases. Why the discrepancy between Google and Georgia? Well, because Google is not breaking out the cases based on the date of the test. Google is breaking out the cases based on the date the test comes back. So for example, uh, yesterday, Google shows 766 cases, but what the Department of Public Health shows is 32 cases. That's problematic in the ability to give people accurate information because the state knows more and is now relaying more information and the public resources available to most people aren't doing that. And we need to do a better job to provide a better picture for people. And I hope everyone understands that uh, because the big issue here is the regionalism of the virus. 
and the fear factor that is uh, so impactful around the country right now is that we're in a global pandemic, which we are, but that everyone is affected equally and we're not. The other thing you don't see with Google is the number of people recovered. And there's a reason for that. Uh, There are 29,423 confirmed cases in Georgia, and there's no recovered people, and there actually are recovered people. The problem is that the state is not double testing people. You gotta have two tests that are negative to be declared recovered. And the state's so busy trying to, to test people who may have the virus that they're not testing people who are recovered. If you get the virus and you go for two weeks and you have no symptoms and no fever, they're going to presume that you're recovered. Now, part of the problem is asymptomatic people, but the way you know you've you've got the virus is you you go get tested and they say you're positive even if you're asymptomatic and you stay home for two weeks and the virus runs its course in two weeks. There's nowhere on the planet where the virus doesn't run its course in two weeks. So you stay quarantined for two weeks and guess what? You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. So friends, don't let your heart be troubled by this. We'll get through it. There's hope on the horizon, but pay attention to how the data is being reported. The situation is not as dire as what you read in the media. Uh, Georgia is actually on the rebound for the economy and not on the virus, and that's a good thing. Welcome, it is Eric Erickson. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, blah, 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 as I trip over my tongue, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, the phone lines are open, and we need to talk about Tara Reed. You know, the New York Times has proposed that Tara Reed uh, be investigated by the DNC, that there be a full and fair investigation that that they look through all of Joe Biden's records. Uh, yeah, here's Brett Hume and Brett Baer discussing this. I want to ask you about this Tara Reid allegation. I've heard you speak that, uh, you know, we, we may not know the end result of where it goes. But it, one thing raised eyebrows uh, this week, and that's the New York Times, uh, to investigate Tara Reid's allegation. The Democratic National Committee, it says, should move to investigate the matter <laughs> swiftly and thoroughly with the full cooperation of the Biden campaign. Any inventory should be strictly limited to information about Ms. Reid conducted by an unbiased a political panel put together by the DNC and chosen to foster as much trust in its findings as possible. What do you think of that? <laughs> I, when I first heard about it, I thought it was not true. I thought it couldn't possibly be true. But then I looked and read the editorial itself. It is true. And it's just, it's like almost nothing I've ever seen before. It is really quite beyond parody that a leading newspaper would suggest that, 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 that the presumptive nominee of a, a party ought to be investigated by that party. I mean, you know, that tells you as much as anything ever could about the state of the mainstream media in America today. And it is it is absolutely amazing, and I know that at least some on the Democratic side are walking away from that idea. They don't think that's, that's going to fly, and of course it won't fly, but it tells you a lot about the state of our media. It does. It does. Uh, here's Ari Fleischer. I think the key issue is Tara Reid herself, and it shocks me, it amazes me that no media networks have been trying to put her on other than Fox News. You know, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, they would normally die to interview the woman who was accusing a prominent politician of sexual abuse. Here, they just won't put her on. They're not interested in her story. The double standard is so thick. 
If she was accusing a Republican, they'd be rushing to put her on. But they're shielding you Joe know, Biden. And, and this is the breakdown of the media, and that's what I'm afraid of and why this really is not going to have legs. The press won't let it have legs. As, as I you know, so some of the some of the progressives are are saying the quiet part out loud. Now, I mentioned Tara or not Tara, uh, Laura Bloom yesterday. She is the uh, daughter of Gloria Allred. Let me bring back up the the tweet uh, that she put out. She wrote, I believe you, Tara Reed. Lisa Bloom, uh, I believe you, Tara Reed. You have people who remember you told them about this decades ago. You know, we know he is handsy. You're not asking for money. You're obviously struggling mightily with this. I still have to fight Trump, so I will still support Joe, but I believe you and I'm sorry. That's saying the quiet part out loud. Lisa Bloom, by the way, is being attacked for daring to say this, pointing out she helped Harvey Weinstein. They're attacking her for saying the quiet part out loud. Uh, contrast her with Robert Gibbs, the former White House press secretary for Obama, who went on MSNBC. Well, I, look, I think people are going to have to answer for how they talked about how they're talking about every case. Uh, I think the sensible standard here is uh, and should be that if uh, a complaint is made, that an investigation should be done. Good example over the weekend, there was a complaint or, or a, an alleged uh, action that happened uh, that accused the vice president uh, of something. And we found out that the date that it was alleged and the dinner that it was alleged to have taken place at um, the vice president didn't attend. So I, I think if your standard, I think your standard can't be to simply believe everything you hear that requires an investigation. And I think, again, this weekend's example is probably a pretty good one about what the due diligence that, that has to take place and should take place. These complaints are important. They should be heard, uh, but they also should be investigated to make sure that what is being alleged is true. Notice the, the move here, it was believe all women. In fact, you had people like Stacey Abrams say that, oh, I got, oh, hang on. I got to write down because she wasn't even in the stack stuff. I want to talk about this. Stacey Abrams. There's a story out there on Stacey Abrams. I got to talk about that. We'll get to that. Um, so, it, But the standard here is now you got to investigate. You got to investigate. And they want to say that Kavanaugh was not investigated. The FBI went out and they interviewed everyone. Hold them to that standard. Ask the FBI to get involved and go out and interview all the people. Have them questioned by the, that's what they did for Kavanaugh. And the Democrats say that wasn't an investigation. Well, that's more than what's happened with Tara Reid. Notice how they're they're twisting this, though. It used to be believe all women. Stacey Abrams and other Democrats came out and said, you have to believe all women. It is the assertion that's important because you're dealing with power. And to stop powerful men, we need to believe all women, because if we don't believe women, then what's going to happen is there will be other victims who refuse to come forward thinking they're not going to be believed. So we got to believe all women. That was the standard then. And the standard now is, well, no, not really. We believe all women, just not this woman. This woman needs to be investigated. And so what does the New York Times want him to do? The New York Times actually wants the Democratic National Committee to do the investigation. Brittany was right to laugh. Can you imagine? We tried to investigate Tara Reed. Uh, she appears to be the sister of Dwayne Reed, the pharmaceutical chain that's been bought by Walgreens, and now Walgreens won't let us interview her. 
I mean, that's that's the absurdity of what's going to happen with something like this. Uh, there, there's no way. <laughs> We've got to investigate. Let the DNC do it. Um, that desperation. They know they got a problem. They know they've got a problem. Here's here's the bottom line though on this. And this makes partisan Democrats mad, and, and I'm about to make some of you mad. The Democrats will get their own Donald Trump, and they will never admit it. If Donald Trump wins in November, the Democrats are going to go completely insane. You think it's bad now. If Donald Trump wins re-election, in addition to breaking a whole bunch of people, they're going to be Democrats who just lose their minds. I'm almost, I, I, I almost want the president reelected, not to stop the advance of democratic policies, but to actually watch what happens. It'd be a dangerous time in America, but I'm, I'm actually, I, I, I'm just, I'm curious to see the crack up of the Democratic Party. And what will happen is the Democrats will find someone who is in every way, shape, and form exactly what they think Donald Trump is. What they say Donald Trump is, they will find that person. And they will run that person. Remember, you talk to Democrats. I, I'm on Bill Maher's show on HBO every once in a while. And even Bill Maher talks about how, the, you know, the Democrats just don't play dirty. Now, from my vantage point, it's the Republicans who always cave, and it's the Democrats who play dirty. But from Maher's stand, standpoint, he thinks it's the Democrats who cave and the Republicans play dirty. I think we will we will witness nothing like it if Donald Trump wins re-election, the crack-up of the Democratic Party. they keep Victory keeps holding this off. They will hand their party over to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They will say they need full-on socialism. They will go nuts. Kind of want to see it. But the point here is that all these Democrats who say, no, no, we'll never have our own Donald Trump, they will. They'll never admit it, but they will. All of the things they think Donald Trump is, their guy will become. Now, the difference is that they will try to nuance it. They'll try to evade it. They'll try to distract from it. But it's going to be a problem. They're going to get it. Now, here's the other thing. There, There is an upshot for the Democrats here. And we do need to deal with this. We do need to recognize it. The polling's actually really bad for the GOP right now. Now, you can say the polling's wrong. Uh, nationwide, you know that the polling is, is problematic. But look at the state level. Charlie, my producer, is from Montana. The Republican polling in Montana right now is brutal. The president is only a couple of points ahead of Joe Biden in Montana. Uh, the, The Republican incumbent senator in Montana is now trailing the Democratic governor of Montana who has his own woman problems. It's not good for the GOP there. The GOP right now is losing Montana, losing Arizona, losing Colorado, which is to be expected, losing Maine, and now losing Iowa, and losing North Carolina. That's a bloodbath for the GOP. If the Senate candidates are losing those states, the president is losing those states. The president is actually behind consistently in polling in Arizona, which is one of the most Republican states of the nation, and he's losing to Joe Biden there. The president in some of the polling here is only a few points ahead of Biden. Now, I actually think he's higher and more ahead than Biden, 
But this is pretty consistent in the polling trends. The GOP is not doing well. If you're losing Senate races, if the GOP is losing Senate races, the odds are they're losing those presidential races as well. The president was never going to win a place like Maine, and he was never going to win a place like Colorado. But he was going to win a place like Montana, and he was going to win a place like Arizona, and he was going to win a place like Iowa. If he loses uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, he's toast to begin with. If he loses these others, it's it's bad for the GOP. The Texas polling is no longer an anomaly. The polling for the GOP in Texas right now is not good either. And so much of it comes back to the virus. Now, here, here are a couple of points to make, though. It's early, and it's virus-related. I was actually talking to a uh, establishment Republican guy the other day who really hates the president, which is kind of funny because he goes on TV and, and he defends the president a lot, but he really doesn't like the president. Uh, and he was saying the downside of this is that if the president loses in November and takes the GOP with him, uh, they'll be able to say it was all about the virus and they won't have to address any of the underlying problems with the president's management and style and, and things like that. And and he really thinks there are deep underlying issues beyond the virus. And he's probably right. No one will ever want to address those. But it's still early. And this is why I think we're headed into partisan territory on the rebound conversation. I mean, I, I guess this is a constant theme throughout all three hours of this program today, because I, I, I have long maintained shelter in place was the right thing to do, but it's now time to reopen the economy. The virus is on the decline. Uh, this was always about making sure hospitals could handle the overflow. Hospitals are now up to capacity. They can handle the overflow. They've got the capacity to do it. ICU bed space is available. Hospital bed space is available. PPE is available. Ventilators are available. We, we know what to do. We've got treatments on the way. There are positive signs. It's time to reopen the economy. And I think increasingly you're going to hear different no, we can't do this. It's about stopping. People are going to die. I mean, you've got the Atlantic, for Pete's sake, saying that George is conducting an experiment in human sacrifice. This was never about stopping the virus to them or to anybody. It, it, it was always about flattening the curve to let hospitals and testing and everything else ramp up. They've done it. We flattened the curve. It's time to go back to work. No, we can't do this. People will die. People will get the virus. People are going to die. Donald Trump is going to kill people. Brian Kipp is going to kill people. They've just moved the goalposts. They've become really expert at moving the goalposts and also having the media move it with them so the media never has to hold themselves accountable. Not that the media ever will. Here's Mike DeWine. He's the governor of Ohio who's now starting to talk about opening his state. He's been hyper-aggressive in shutting down his state. And now he wants to reopen it. And he says this. These are words, pearls of wisdom. From Mike DeWine. Uh, I want to play something that the former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie said to, to our Dana Bash today. Of course everybody wants to save every life they can. But the question is, towards what end ultimately? Are there ways that we can thread the middle here to allow there, that there are going to be deaths? And they're going to be deaths no matter what. And if we can do things to keep people in the mode of wearing masks, of wearing gloves, of, of you know, distancing where appropriate, we've got to let some of these folks get back to work because if we don't, um, we're going to destroy the American way of life in these families. And it will be years and years before we can recover. I mean, that is well, I think what it boils down to. Do you agree with what he's saying? Well, I think that it's absolutely true that there are a lot of costs for high unemployment and a huge crash in the economy that we have seen. And they're not all, there are a lot of social costs, there are obviously the economic costs, but there are also uh, medical costs there in the sense of health costs. Uh, you know, we generally, when the economy goes down, you, you see 
uh, domestic abuse, for example, go up. You see depression go up. So there are, in fact, a lot of costs. And so we're, we're trying to do two things in Ohio at once. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do it very, very carefully. But I think that, you know, you, you are trying to do do both of those things. And uh, but it, it, the bottom line really uh, is Ohioans have been great about distancing. They've got us this far. They flattened the curve. They got us to the point where we are today. They're going to have to continue to do that uh, if we're going to avoid a, a big spike in a number of cases and, and see a dramatic increase in the number of deaths. I have confidence that that they can do that. But it really, it's not the orders I issue or my health director issues. It's really what people do every day in their own lives that ultimately has this huge effect uh, across the state. And I would add across the nation. Uh, it's what you and I do with our behavior to stop the spread of the virus. I, I understand the resistance of people who don't want the government to make them wear masks. You know, I was always the kid who hated, the, the particularly when I got to college, the, the mandatory things that we're, we're going on on the mandatory trust walk. It was just, just I, I'm, I'm an adult now. I don't want to do a stupid trust walk. I, I've always been that way. When, when people tell me I have to do something, I, I just genuinely don't like to do it. So I understand when people tell you you have to wear a mask. You don't want to wear a mask. I get that. But you need to wear a mask. If you go to the grocery store, wear a mask. You need to be responsible. There are a lot of people who say the virus only affects the elderly. That's not true. But given the number of asymptomatic people out there, you want to be safe. You want to keep your family safe. And you want to keep your grandparents and your parents safe. You, you do. you you got obligations to other people. I'm all about rugged individualism. It's what made this country great. But but with that individualism and, and the freedom to be an individual comes with responsibility as well to not spread a pathogen around when you can easily prevent it from spreading around. And if you want to rebound the state and you want to rebound the economy and you want to rebound the nation, you need to be responsible in doing it. And that's what so many people are missing right now. They're so angry about shelter in place. They're fighting the last battle, though. It's about reopening the country. And if you want to reopen the country, do it safely. Be safe, be responsible, be respectful of others as well. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I gotta, where is this story? Hang on a second. Yeah, this this is this is impressive to me. Uh, I So I, I've mentioned before, so I don't have a Costco in Macon. Allegedly, there was going to be a Costco, uh, but a, the, the area where they wanted to build it backed up to a residential area, and the residential area lost their minds at the thought of a Costco going there. And so instead, they, they built another big commercial development with lofts and whatnot. Um, but I want a Costco. There's a Sam's Club in Macon. I, but I hear great things about Costco. I've never set foot in I've never even been in a Costco parking lot. Um so I'm I'm interested in Costco, but uh, this this is a fascinating story. Uh, the headline: This is from the Hustle. Uh, it, it, the man feeding a remote Alaska town with a Costco card and a ship. When Gustavus Alaska was cut off from its grocery supply chain, one resident to take mat- decided to take matters in his own hands. On a Tuesday afternoon in late April, a small barge set off from Gustavus Alaska en route to the world's most remote Costco warehouse. The 96-foot ship hummed through the choppy waters of the icy strait, 
past vast expanses of wilderness, snow-capped peaks, and breaching whales. Seven hours later, when it reached Juneau, a few intrepid men loaded its dock with $20,000 worth of eggs, flour, meat, canned goods, and produce. It returned to Gustavus in the twilight haze with a bird bearing provisions, like a bird bearing provisions for its chicks. Like many of America's rural and remote towns, Gustavus has an arduous supply chain. Even in good times, getting groceries to an isolated enclave in southeastern Alaska requires some serious logistical wrangling. But when the town's usual transport method was disrupted, its 446 residents found themselves in the midst of a pandemic with diminished access to affordable food. And one man, the town grocer, decided to take matters in his own hands. So Gustavus is, is southeast Alaska. It, it is in the straits there near Juneau. They didn't get electricity until 85. They didn't get phone lines until the mid-90s. There are no roads to the outside world. Uh, you either got to fly in there with a with a um, plane or you got to take a boat. And the residents are mostly retirees and biologists and the like. And so this town grocer, he and his dad have a boat. And they decided to just start sailing the boat to Costco every week. They load up on groceries. And they bring them back and sell them at a slight markup. There used to be a ferry. The ferry shut down. This is their only way to get groceries. American ingenuity in the Isles of Alaska. Well, this just in, uh, the Broward County Sheriff in Florida has appeared half naked in racy photos with topless women. Apparently, the Sheriff of Broward County, Florida is Florida man. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We must begin with this news. Researchers say a roughly two-inch long insect known as the murder hornet has made its way to the U.S. The hornets appear to have arrived in December after the Washington State Department of Agriculture verified four reports of sightings. Asian giant hornets are the largest species of hornet in the world. They are known to kill up to 50 people a year in Japan. The wasps could be devastating to the already dwindling bee population. Um, I'm, I appreciate the fact that she said Asian giant hornet, but have you noticed the sensitivity in the media to actually saying the word Asian these days? We can't call it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus because that's racist, even though the media did that for so long. And, oh, my gosh, the, we, we can't say the Asian hornet. Let's let's call it something traditional. It's the, the murder hornet. That's what it is. That's the ticket. It's the murder hornet that's coming from um, – from, it, um, it, it came from uh, overseas, from somewhere – on the other side of the Pacific, we can't tell you where because that would be racist. <laughs> the sensational headlines of the last several days of the, the murder hornet. Okay, so this two-inch long hornet has arrived in the Western Hemisphere. The, the, the nickname is the murder hornet, and the reason is because the way that this hornet feeds is it rips the heads off uh, bees and f- carries the thorax back to the uh to its uh larvae or whatever and 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 feeds in their nests that's what they do uh the 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 murder asian giant uh hornet 
but God help them. They don't want to, they don't want to say, they don't say giant Asian Hornet because that would be racist. <laughs> Murder Hornet. Uh, it also captures the imagination, does it not? Apparently, these things sting you. It feels like uh, hot lava. Uh, in Japan, upwards of 40 people a year die from stings from the giant Asian hornet. They're, they're, they're fearsome beasts and need to be exterminated. Interestingly enough, do you know what they're doing? Uh, they're using drone technology, particularly in the upper, uh, in the northwest where it's still cool. They, they're ha- the, the nests tend to be underground. And so what they do is they fly the um, they fly drones over, looking for hot spots underground, because the hornets they go underground, they flap their wings, they generate heat. Uh, the the heat trickles up through the ground. You can find the hot spots and know where the nests are. That's how you exterminate them, which is fascinating. By the way, you you know how the bees handle the Asian uh, the, the Asian hornet. They swarm the Asian hornet and and cause friction and cook the hornet alive. The problem is that the hornets are two to three times the size as the bee in some cases. And if a bunch of them invade, well, then you got problems. So now our farmers have a new nemesis. Remember all the the, the worry about the bees and uh, even Dick Cheney and George Bush when they were in the in uh, the administration their administration had private briefings on the bee population, the collapse of the bee population, and it appears that it might be a a, a mite or a fungus. They were it's global warming, it's it's radio waves, it's 5G, it's 4G, it's LTE, it's cell phones, it's the iPhone. Nope. Turns out there might be a mite that was getting into bee populations and wiping out bees. I've got several friends who keep bee populations. Uh, I've thought about it, but I'm not a big honey eater. My wife is though. But it um it's apparently a very expensive hobby, so I, I have no desire. Now, that, that's not really the news. I just I had to start with the murder, murder hornet population, which is just nonsensical stuff. Um, what I really want to talk about right now, though, is something that's not making a whole lot of headlines today. Not making nearly as many headlines as it was. Let me see if I can go back and find the audio. Where Where is the old audio? Not there... I, yeah, listen, I'm normally more prepared for this. Charlie's going to send me an angry email telling me I need to be more focused. But now I suddenly remember, I think I have this on file. I'm going to find it. Yes, here we go. This audio from the president of the United States. It happened on April 22nd at a White House press conference. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are, they're great. They've been strong, resolute, but at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. I want him to do what he thinks is right. Uh, But I disagree with him on what he's doing, what I want to let the governors do. Now, if I see something totally egregious, totally out of line, I'll do. But I think spas and beauty salons and tattoo parlors and barber shops in uh, phase one, we're going to have phase two very soon, is just too soon. I think it's too soon. Uh, well, you know, the president on Friday now says, I didn't say that. 
I said I didn't like the particular place, a spa, a tattoo parlor. No, no, I think it's wonderful. I think what Brian Kemp is doing is wonderful. He's trying to reopen his state. That's the president of the United States now saying uh, he, he <laughs> walking away from his prior criticism. You knew it was going to happen, didn't you? I mean, it was kind of predictable that something like this was going to happen. Uh, the, the president now praising Brian Kemp for beginning the reopening of the state. And uh, by the way, just so you know the metrics here, I, I should explain this to you. Based on the available research, doctors, epidemiologists, scientists say it takes two weeks to find a trend with COVID-19. The reason it takes two weeks, there, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, COVID-19 sometimes takes a week or two for symptoms to present even though people can be infected and there are lots of asymptomatic people who never get symptoms. So between that and the testing lag, it takes two weeks to see if the virus is resurgent. If it is, you might have problems in your state. And so we will find out in Georgia in two weeks whether or not the governor opened too soon. But here, here's the thing. We've known all along the virus was going to go back up in the state. The question has always been about capacity at hospitals, PPE, ventilators, things like that. We got plenty in the state now to mitigate. But here's the other thing. I, I asked this on Twitter earlier, and I got a direct – I can't tell you who it was from, uh, but I got a direct message from an expert who said uh, just under half of the deaths in the United States – are nursing homes. New York today is reporting 1,200 additional deaths that it had miscounted in the paperwork. Uh, they're actually COVID-19 deaths. And no, 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 stop. Please stop with the conspiracy theory that they're just counting everyone uh, as as deaths. Even I, I hear the the um, the funeral home director in Florida and the, and the state officials come out and say, the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's just not true. And I listen, I know I can't dissuade you from believing the lie that confirms your worldview, but this crap is not true. They're not just willing. To, oh, gunshot victim. Oh, but he's tested positive for COVID-19. Let, let's list his death as, as COVID-19. Secondary calls will be bleeding out from a gunshot wound. That's not the way any of this works. It never has been. It is a BS conspiracy theory to think it is. And there are willful people trying to undermine even the actions of this president purportedly to help the president who are peddling the lies. Just stop it. The fact of the matter is New York City has found another 1,200 people in nursing homes who died who should have been COVID-19 deaths, but the paperwork was sent somewhere else, so they didn't get the death certificates. But here's the thing. There 60,000 deaths. Do you know what the death toll would be if you got rid of the nursing home and the elder care facilities? It'd be 30,000 deaths, a flu season. Now, a flu season compressed into nine, 10 weeks, mind you, but still a flu. That's one of the things we're missing here. We have failed our senior citizens. That's why the death toll is so bad. Yes, uh, people with comorbidities. I, I love the way people are throwing that word around, comorbid. Oh, well, it's people with comorbidities who die. You people don't even know what the word means. Not not you, my listeners. Y'all are educated. But the people who are throwing this around as if they are as if they got their PhD from Oxford and did their, their, did their residency at Harvard. 
uh, the comorbidities of the people who are dying. I, I read on the internet and watched a YouTube video that t- tells me that it's this percentage of people and it's the overweight people, but it's only if your BMI is over 35. If your BMI is under 35 and you're still obese, you're not considered morbidly obese and the, the data doesn't support it, but the comorbidities of people who have diabetes shows that they're the ones who are not. Just stop it. You watch some idiot on YouTube and now you're parodying it. Actually talk to the real people who are in, in the line of work. Go to the hospital and talk to the doctor who's in the emergency room. Stop. Yeah, listen, I am no expert, and I tell you people every day, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I know the people to talk to who actually are. The, I am amazed at the armchair experts who, oh my gosh, I read Wikipedia, and did you know? Why don't you pick up the phone and call the CDC to get an answer? Like, for example, the the, the number of people, I, there was some guy who was harassing me last week on on. Twitter that, oh, you know, the, the number of people who are uh, dead from the flu this year in Georgia outweighs the number of people who've actually died from COVID-19. If you bother to pay attention to the website you were getting the data from, you would see that the uh, the data on the, the COVID-19 stuff is a month behind on that website because they have to wait for the processing of death certificates before they put it on that website. That's good Lord. There are answers to these questions. I'm just tired of armchair idiots. That, that's what I'm tired of. People are stupid. Uh, and it's on the on the left as well. Uh, I, I don't mean to pick on uh, COVID-19 truthers on the right. On the left, you've got these people who are just absolutely good. As you know, remdesivir does not work. Remdesivir doesn't work because the president said it worked. And when the president says it's wrong, we have to wait for China to tell us what to believe. Come on, people, think for yourself. We we have an inability of people in this country to think for themselves, which is my common core gripe. Not to get, oh, God, here it comes. I'm sorry, I should say it that way. Here it comes. Common core. It has invaded our schools and our society, and we have people who have just completely lost their ability to think for themselves. Uh, you you got to have the government pull your strings and and stick a, a stick some expert's hand up your butt and move your lips like you're a Muppet for you to be able to believe something or say something. Come on, people, think for yourselves and stop getting on YouTube and finding the person who just agrees with everything. (gasps) This person tells me exactly what I believe. I must be right. The inability for people to think for themselves anymore and to be challenged on the facts and maybe change their mind, it is stunning to me. And it is pervasive in all aspects of society these days. I mean, you, you go online and you only want to find people who tell you what you want to hear. And it is happening on the left and it is happening on the right. You can go your entire life these days and never be challenged on anything you think. In fact, I do have to say, it is more likely that if you're on the right, you're going to be challenged. If you're on the left, you can watch CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC, read the Atlanta Journal, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post, read the LA Times, read USA Today, and you will never be challenged in anything you believe. And so you don't know what truth is. You only know what's being regurgitated as as left-wing thought these days, being masqueraded as truth. But the same thing is happening on the right. With The, the COVID-19 truthers are really starting to aggravate me more than they should because I'm hearing all the time, all the time now that, that everything you knew is true. That, that Dan Erickson guy did untold. The number, I'm still getting people sending me links. It's taken off YouTube, and I'm still getting people sending me links. Have you seen this video? Yes, I watched that video now three times. It is an hour-long video of that doctor in California. 
and uh, doing a, a a service to 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 friends and listeners. Have you watched it? He's telling it like it is. No, he's telling you what he believes and what you want to believe, and it's not actually true. He's handled six thousand people, and six percent of them tested positive, and they're people going to his service because it's ambulatory here. Of course, there were that many people who tested positive. They were going there because they were sick. For God's sakes. But he tells me exactly what I think, therefore he must be right. No, you idiots, no. And I'm insulting friends now, and I realize that. But come on, think for yourselves. The the number of people, oh, I thought this all along, and now here comes this doctor who tells me that all my prior thoughts are exactly right, and I don't have to rethink anything. Screw the rest of the experts. This guy's it. That's not the way fact works. That's not the way truth works. That's not the way logic works. And yet we have, yeah, our, our, uh, when did our brains break as a nation? Seriously, when, when did everybody's brain, you just gave up on thinking? Was it social media? Maybe it is social media. Uh, maybe it is the iPhone. Do you know that there's actually a book out, uh, iGen? Uh, so many people told me I need to read this book. There is actually, um, the rate of teen suicide is actually fairly consistent until 2007, and there has been a dramatic spike in teen suicide since then. And do you know what more and more psychologists and sociologists are are pointing to? The iPhone. Correlation, causation, I realize uh, there's an issue there, but the, the rate in teen suicide remarkably has gone up pretty significantly since the introduction of the iPhone. And do you know why it really isn't the iPhone? It's what the iPhone made possible. Snapchat, Instagram, immediate access to Facebook and social media. Uh, The rates of bullying, online bullying have gone up. Uh, The ability to see your friends at parties that you weren't invited to and didn't even know exist. Uh, The ability to see your friends saying bad things about you online that you didn't even know. It all went up and it's all impacted. Um, It has all impacted the psychology of teens and the rate of teen suicide has gone up. There are correlations and there are causations, but I I really do believe the inability for people to process information different from what they thought and be challenged by it and maybe rethink what they're thinking or maybe hear the data and and decide that, you know what, they're wrong, I'm right, is just completely gone away in American society these days. And, And it is a chief frustration of mine as someone who is a conservative, who is an evangelical Christian, who does believe in certain principles as being right and true, and yet is willing to entertain facts that may be contrary to mine, and then try to see, okay, based on my principles, assume this is true, how does this fit into my principles and how should we navigate? And nobody wants to do that anymore. And it's a deep frustration of mine. People just can't think. I realize people are stupid. I say it all the time. But there are some really intelligent people out there who just are no longer thoughtful. Here's another great example of people not willing to think for themselves. And I don't mean to pick on Mike Baker. He's a reporter for the New York Times. If you remove New York from the data, the number of new coronavirus cases being identified in the United States each day is still on the rise as if that's a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. I know know what you think. How could it be a good thing? Well, think. Why are so many new cases being reported? Because testing's gone up. You you actually, Nate Silver actually points this out in in response to this. Uh, The article in the New York Times that Mike Baker is, is, is retweeting doesn't mention how the amount of testing has increased by 60% in the past few weeks. This doesn't make the situation particularly great, but it's context that can't be omitted in the discussion of cases. Adjusting for testing volume, you'll likely get a slight overall decline outside of New York City. 
a lot of the news coverage winds up punishing states for doing more testing because if you do more testing, you find more cases and therefore get worse headlines. So it's not just bad reporting. It creates poor incentives since we need more tests. Yes, please. That's a very good point. How many of the the national headlines now are pooping on Georgia because Georgia has ramped up testing. You know, the, the Georgia testing is actually phenomenal now. Uh, and, and so many more people. In fact, I, I hear in, in middle Georgia this coming weekend, they'll be giving free tests to people who need them. Uh, they're doing it around the state in Athens as well and elsewhere. We've got now over 200,000 tests. When I, uh, it, last week when they revamped the website, there were 100,000 tests. We've gone up 100,000. Uh, we've got 29,499 cases in Georgia now, 5,564 hospitalizations. That 5,564 hospitalizations is actually a really impressive number because that's cumulative. That is cumulative. And the hospitalization rate has not jumped dramatically, which means as more people are being tested and the positive test rate is going up, the hospital percentage is actually going down. So let, let me let me run this number real quick. Um, we've got... 5,564 hospitalizations, 29,499. Uh, so the hospitalization rate in Georgia has gone from 21% to 18.8%. As more tests are identified, it turns out fewer people are being hospitalized. Now, what about the death rate? Because the national death rate has actually gone up. In Georgia, the death rate is now 48 which is up from 3.5 where it was, but is way less. The national mortality right now for COVID-19 is over 7%, which is in line with most European countries. Sweden is at 12%. It's the worst in the world right now. Georgia is actually outperforming nationally in terms of hospitalization and deaths as our testing goes up. That's really good. We should be incentivizing this instead of giving them bad headlines. Good gracious, the New York Times uh, leadership says it's not letting people back in the building until September 8th, the Tuesday after Labor Day. You know, about the time they say the virus is going to (laughs) rebound. All right. Um, The the, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have said now a couple of times that if you want to understand the contradictions in how Democrats can defend Christine Blasey Ford against Brett Kavanaugh and question Tara Reid about Joe Biden, even though Tara Reid has many more people who corroborate her story than Christine Blasey Ford ever did, what you need to understand is it's never been about Me Too. It's never been about sexual harassment. It's never been about sexual assault. It's never been about fighting the patriarchy per se. It's about whether or not murdering babies should be legal. That, that's, that's, that, that is the only thing that explains the contradictions. Uh, the Democrats are overrun as a party with people who believe that killing children is a constitutionally protected right. Now, listen, I, I'm 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 not going to nuance around it. Oh, abortion. Abortion is just a euphemism for ripping a child limb from limb. 
that's all abortion is. Uh, well, not, not necessarily. That's not all it is. In some cases, uh, you, you take a medicine that induces labor early and, and you push the child out before the child can survive. And in other cases, you crack open the child's brain and suck its brains out with a little vacuum cleaner and, and then rip it apart. But you, you get the point. It's, it's killing a child. I, I'm sorry for, for the, the, the graphic depiction of what it is, but let, let's not dance around what it is. We hide behind euphemisms like abortion to to avoid having to have that conversation. And this plays so much into Democratic Party politics these days. This is why Tara Reid is a non-starter, because they know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg needs to get off the Supreme Court, and they much prefer Joe Biden be the one to fill that seat than Donald Trump. It's all about abortion politics. In the same way, there's a Supreme Court case, I believe that's going to be argued tomorrow, the little sisters of the poor are yet again uh, headed to the Supreme Court. Little sisters of the poor, they are the, the Catholic charity run by nuns, and they refuse to provide abortion services in their insurance contract. And they won at the Supreme Court the last time, and yet they're being put upon again by the left at a time that the the charity itself is overwhelmed, do you know one of the primary things that Little Sisters of the Poor does? They run nursing homes for poor people. In New Jersey, a fifth of the residents at the Little Sisters of the Poor nursing home have died of COVID-19. The Little Sisters of the Poor are themselves, many of them elderly and getting the virus. And they're, in many cases, doing what they can to work around it to save lives and provide comfort to those who are deteriorating. And yet the left feels the need to take them back to court again to demand that they pay for people to kill kids. In the same way they're doing with Masterpiece uh, Bake Shop, Jack Phillips in Colorado. I mentioned this yesterday. Jack Phillips is the baker in Colorado who refuses, I mean, this guy, Jack Phillips will not bake. If he finds out that you're having a second marriage because you got divorced, Jack Phillips won't bake a wedding cake for you. Whether he, it doesn't matter. He won't bake a cake for a gay wedding. He won't bake a cake for Halloween. He won't bake a cake for uh transgender coming out. He won't bake a cake for a second marriage of a divorced heterosexual couple. He won't do it. You don't have to use his his bake shop. Do you know within a mile of Jack Phillips's masterpiece bake shop uh, are four other bakeries that will make wedding cakes? And he is systematically and routinely targeted by left-wing activists who demand that they will make him care. You will be made to care. I was reading actually the biography yesterday of a seminary professor who goes, uh, I, I, I did not, I knew the guy's name. I didn't realize he was a seminary professor at a Baptist seminary. And turns out the reason he's a Baptist seminarian is because he was a consultant in the technology world. And he was paid lots of money by major tech companies to come in and lecture on ethics of the use of technology and how tech companies can treat their workers and how people can use technology ethically for the greater human good. And someone discovered that he was not only pro-life, but he was against gay marriage, and he had written against gay marriage. 
He's now a seminary professor because he got blackballed by the tech companies and can no longer work in technology because he disagrees with the left on these things. You can't have civil disagreement when it comes to the left. And if you're someone like Tara Reid, you are a deeply problematic person because as a deeply problematic person, you are advancing an agenda that undermines their ability to maintain the right to kill children. And, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, civilly, I'm I'm trying to navigate myself through the minefield I myself have laid out. (laughs) Let's just be honest here. Um, I, I, I am, let, let's take Joe Biden. I disagree with Joe Biden on pretty much everything. Joe Biden's been historically, Joe Biden has been one of the most wrong people on foreign policy in modern American history. Joe Biden, you will recall is the guy who wanted to divide Iraq into three parts and then not help the Kurds when he gave them a country. Uh, but if you gave the Kurds a country, the other two parts would have it would have been deeply problematic. Joe Biden has been more wrong than almost anyone on, on the world stage, and yet the Democrats want him to be their nominee. I, I'm trying to navigate carefully here. I like Joe and Jill Biden personally. And one of the, the issues, like I'm, I'm going to say something, and it's going to make some of you mad. And no, I'm not going to take phone calls on this point. I am friends with people who I fundamentally disagree with on politics, including on the issue of abortion. And we don't talk about those issues and we find common ground. And in normal, polite society, that is what people have always done. You found common ground with people with whom you disagreed on politics And you tried to enjoy each other's company. Now, there are some people it's impossible with on the left and the right. But by and large, you try to set aside politics. I I personally can't understand someone who is so consumed by politics that they can't be friends with someone else. You you know, I I talked about yesterday the Good Samaritan, Samaritan's Purse being thrown out of New York City. Uh, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Not love your neighbor who agrees with you on everything in politics. Love, Love your neighbor. And I, I get all the time the 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 smart Alex who's well I love my na- my neighbor by praying that God will turn their heart and they will repent of their sins and and vote for Donald Trump. That's not what it means. Just love your neighbor. You, you, I, I we as a society this 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 on social media. Increasingly, we have developed our own communities online. And they look exactly like us. They look exactly like us. The people that we are friends with, by and large, on social media, agree with us on nine-tenths of everything. When we have gatherings of people, those gatherings tend to be with people who agree with us on nine-tenths of everything. They look like us. They sound like us. They think like us. And we, all of us, have a harder time encountering people who disagree with us and trying to find friendships with those people. We keep them at arm's length. And part, listen, I, I'm not saying go out and find people you fundamentally disagree with and, and try to be their friends. Sometimes it's hard. I know people 
who who just say, you know, let, let, let me give you an example. So I, I spoke at Mercer, uh, my alma mater is Mercer University, and I spoke there at their founder celebration several years ago. And it was a good event. I was very flattered, very honored to speak at, at uh, Founders Day at Mercer. And the women and gender studies professors were beside themselves. Now, they did not know me. They, they, they wanted to make no attempt to, to, to get to know me. Uh, they, they were horrified at the fact that the university would give me a platform to speak to the student body on anything. And, and I wound up agreeing to do things no other speaker had to do to accommodate the, these life failures who became women and gender studies professors because they couldn't get a job in the real world. I, I, I have no reason to try to accommodate people like that when they don't even want to try to accommodate me. So I'm not telling you to go out there and find the most obnoxious person you can you can find and, and try to become friends with them. There are some people it's just not going to work. Some people are so ideologically poisoned, uh, they're not going to be. And that's on both sides of the aisle, by the way. Oh, yeah, Siri, you don't understand. The rest of us do. I tell you. Uh, th- there are some people out there who politics has become their religion on both sides. Women and gender studies professors are filled with them. Politics has become their religion. Um, it, woke politics is just, I mean, that is their God. But there are people on the right like that too. No, I'm not going to say this because I know that person's listening and I don't mean to offend them. But I, I know people out there who see everything through a political lens. Y'all, I, I don't have enough time in the day to worry about what grocery store shares my values, to worry about wh- whether or not I should be eating at Wendy's or Arby's or Chick-fil-A based on the political giving of the people there. I, I, I know a person, and this person's not listening, I know a person who keeps an app on their phone. And when they go shopping and they encounter a product they're curious about and they don't know, they try to look it up on this app to tell them whether or not that product, the, the company behind that product, supports socially progressive causes so that they can buy it or not because they only want to support socially progressive causes. This is a religion. I don't have enough time in my day to do that. And increasingly in society, more and more people don't do that. And, And the problem is that we then see the other side, not as people we disagree with in politics, but as the enemy. When I tell people all the time I'm friends with, for example, Donna Brazil from CNN and I, we're friends. She's like a member of my family. I, I love Donna Brazil. And in fact, it was kind of funny. When I started at CNN, uh, she was the enemy. I mean, she she was a Bill Clinton, Al Gore person. And we got to know each other. We're both from Louisiana. Uh, we struck up a friendship. And and I this, But when I tell conservatives that she and I are friends, I'm like a traitor to the cause for daring to be friends with a Democrat. We don't talk. We don't agree on politics. But there's so much more to life than politics. But yet there are people listening to me right now who are horrified and are probably reaching to flip the channel right now because they can't contemplate that I might be friends with someone with whom I disagree on everything politically. This is a dangerous thing in society because it allows us to otherize people who disagree with us politically. And frankly, this is happening more on the left than the right. This is why I, yesterday I mentioned how secularism so easily becomes tyranny. Because if you're on the left, if in fact, I, I wrote this this morning on my subsec page. Let, let me just read you what I wrote. Let's say you repent of your belief that climate change is nonsense and you accept mankind's actually to blame. 
You trade in your car for a bike. You unplug your home from the power grid, put up solar panels and a windmill. You invest in unicorn farts for extra power. You take up composting and a religious devotion to recycling. You're still damned to hell on earth so long as your neighbor's driving his SUV, has more than 2.25 kids, and is burning incandescent light bulbs. He must be punished, re-educated, silenced, or driven from society in order for you to be saved. The same holds true with transgenderism. Let's say you finally give up the quaint scientific notion that boys cannot become girls and instead embrace the secular religion's dogma that we're born gay or straight, but we get to pick our gender. So long as the Christian bigots out there on the radio saying otherwise and risking convincing others of truth, you can't get your heaven on earth. The bigots got to be censored, silenced, driven from society or worse. We've gotten to this point in our society because it's actually, if you're a conservative listening to me right now, wherever you are nationwide, it is, you have greater odds of encountering a progressive today who is diametrically opposed to you in all of your beliefs than if you're a progressive. If you're a progressive listening to me right now, you're actually a rarity. Because if you're a progressive, you are more likely to live in an urban area surrounded with other progressives to go to a work at a, a Fortune 500 company or a small group or nonprofit where everybody thinks just like you. Frankly, if you are a progressive, you have an easier time in life otherizing conservatives. That's why all of the data shows, for example, a progressive is more likely to be upset if their child were to marry a conservative than a conservative would be upset if their child married a progressive. A progressive secularist is more likely to never encounter a someone who believes that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to heaven except through Jesus, than a conservative is to to uh, regularly encounter a, atheists. In other words, a conservative is more likely to encounter an atheist who doesn't believe Jesus even existed than an atheist is likely to encounter a, a true believing Christian. And it allows both sides to otherize when that happens. And, and conservatives now engaged in social media tend to surround themselves with people who think just like themselves and it becomes harder for conservatives to fathom that someone like me could be friends with a democrat with whom i disagree on politics because they themselves don't do it they only go to their local republican groups they don't they don't go out and about society they go to their church they go to their republican group they're not out there working in in society they're not out working with homeless groups they're not out building friendships in, in local nonprofits where you may encounter a progressive and this is becoming a thing on the right but it's less common than on the left where in the left, you live in a progressive enclave, you work in a progressive enclave, you only engage in progressive activities, you never encounter someone on the right. And so a progressive is actually more likely than a conservative to otherize. And once you otherize, the people believe they're the enemy and believe they need to be silenced and shut up and driven from society. And it becomes really easy for a progressive to look at a nun, like little sisters of the poor, and say, this group offends me they are the enemy. They must be made to care. They must be made to perform abortions or pay for abortions. The Jack Phillips, the baker, must be made to use his talents in service to my cause. Rarely will you find a conservative who says the progressive needs to support my cause. It is increasingly rare to find a progressive who says the conservative doesn't have to support my cause. So I got to clue you in before I get to this next story. I got to clue you in on, on a, a little ongoing behind the scenes joke here. So um, Charlie is my producer and then Philip runs all, all the web properties for me. And 
Philip is more recently married, and Charlie and I both have kids, and and Philip does not. And there's an ongoing joke as to uh, when Philip's parents will have grandkids. Well, I, this this story may completely end uh, all of that. Uh, I find this deeply hilarious. This this actually could probably be Charlie when he was five years old. This is from the New York Post. A five-year-old boy was caught driving his parents' car on the interstate in Utah on Monday on his way to California to buy a Lamborghini. The kid driver made it a handful of miles from his home in Ogden, Utah, on I-15's 25th Street off-ramp, the Utah Highway Patrol said. Troopers initially thought they'd stumbled upon an impaired driver, but soon discovered the perpetrator was actually a child with a penchant for luxury cars. The boy told them he left home after an argument with his mother who refused to buy him a Lamborghini. So the boy decided to get one himself. He had $3 in his wallet and confirmed that he intended to drive to California to buy a Lamborghini. Utah Highway Patrol Sergeant Nick Street confirmed the local TV outlet KSL. The boy is indeed five years old, though the picture taken made him look much older. Uh, they didn't say that there would be a punishment for the boy. But yes, five-year-old in California, or in, in Utah, got into his parents' car after an argument with his mother who refused to buy him a Lamborghini, got $3 in his wallet, and decided to drive his parents' car to California to buy himself the Lamborghini that his mother would not buy. My goodness. My goodness. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, there were two things I wanted. The HR Puffin Stuff Mobile, if you know, you know. And I wanted an F-14 Tomcat. I, I mean, it was on my Christmas list multiple years in a row. I wanted an F-14. And I knew Santa Claus was going to bring me an F-14. Just, I, I don't know how, parking on the roof, something, but I was going to get an F-14. I told my wife and kids that story one time. They thought I was insane. Look, I, when I was a little, you know, when you're a little kid, you, you just think, I mean, the, the world is a possibility. Getting an airplane is totally feasible. When, you, when you're a kid, when you're five years old, it is it is totally a thing. So eventually for, for Christmas one year, my wife and kids got me an F-14 model. I, I can actually see it in my office right now. Uh, they, they got me an F-14 uh, model and, and I finally got my F-14. I really wanted one when I was a kid. And so this five-year-old in Ogden, Utah wants a Lamborghini, has no idea how much the sucker costs, knows that mom's not going to get him one. So he steals his parents' car with his three bucks. And he's, I don't know if he's going off to buy a Hot Wheels one or what. I have no idea. He seems to want to drive to California, get one with no idea how much the Lamborghini is going to cost. But I admire the kid's initiative. That kid is, is going to grow up and be something, I suspect. Maybe the leader of a prison, but he's going to be something impressive.